a chapter on this. The subject isn't addressed by name, but it does have a principle that we can apply to the issue of abortion. If you've come or you're watching online, uh, perhaps for something scandalous or borderline illegal to condemn Christians with, then I'm afraid this evening you're going to leave disappointed. We won't be suggesting destroying or picketing abortion clinics. We won't be suggesting berating or insulting uh, women who have had abortions. Actually, as a church, we believe in the gospel. The good news for people of any background, whatever they have or haven't done. The gospel that holds out hope and forgiveness and redemption. So this will not be a hellfire sermon. Uh, Sorry if that's what you're looking for, but that's not what we're going to do this evening. I should also say that I'm aware that as I speak about this, I am a man talking about abortion. Uh, I'm aware that I don't have a uterus. Uh, I'm aware that I've never been pregnant. I have, however, gone through uh, three pregnancies with my wife. Uh, One where we lost um, two children in the womb, in fact. I want to say, with a subject like this, it's sometimes easy to say it's just a matter for women. But if you think about subjects like that, actually, was it less of a pain for me as a man because I don't have a womb? Was it none of my business because I wasn't carrying the children myself? So let's not pretend that babies and pregnancy are the exclusive realm of women and that men have no right to say anything. Of course it affects women in ways that it does not affect men, of course. But as we think things through and as we address the issues, we want to see what the Bible says, not who's saying what the Bible says. And equally, I don't want to give my opinion as a man, I just want to show us what's there in the Word. So, we're going to look at some principles that we see in the Bible. We're going to see where we stand in the UK. We're going to see what the international situation is. And then finally, we're going to look at some actions that we can take. So first of all, the biblical evidence. And the first thing I want to say is that according to the Bible, life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. The Bible is full of passages that demonstrate that life exists before birth. John the Baptist jumps in Elizabeth's womb when Mary comes to visit, pregnant with Jesus. We're told in the Bible that he leapt for joy. Leapt for joy in the womb. Joy in the womb. That's in Luke 1. Elizabeth is told that he would be filled with the Spirit from the womb. Again in Luke 1. And it might be something to think, well that's John the Baptist, he's a sort of special case. But similar things are said about Jeremiah. God knew him from his mother's womb in Jeremiah 1. Isaiah. Uh, God said that he formed him in the womb to be his servant, Isaiah 49. Paul said that he was set apart before he was born in Galatians 1.15. Samson's mother is told not to drink any wine or eat anything unclean from before she conceives, so that Samson will be a Nazarite set apart from the womb. King David even talks about his sin from his conception in Psalm 51 about being set apart as well in other psalms from his mother's womb. The biblical evidence points to life beginning of conception. It's at that point that the person begins, the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, from that point on, the human life begins. So it's not just the potential life that we're talking about in the womb, it's an actual life. That's the way that the Bible speaks about it. So that's the first thing, life begins at conception. The second thing is that all human life is precious. All human life is precious. The Bible says that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. 
Whatever you want to take as the meaning of that, it is a high honour and privilege that God confers on all human life. He confers it with a preciousness, a dignity. Listen to what God says to Noah after he comes out of the ark. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. When Noah comes off the ark, it's the only negative command that God gives Noah. Human beings are made in the image of God. So to kill a human being is to kill someone who bears God's image. An ambassador for God, so to speak. A stand-in. So to kill a person is an affront to God because he bears God's image. And that's reflected in the law given to Moses. And in fact, it goes on as far to talk about as injury and harm to the unborn child in the womb. So Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, I think it's on the back of your notice sheets. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay for as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. Now the situation here is of a premature birth. That's what it's talking about. So a woman has been hit in a fight, two men are having a fight, they hit a woman by accident, and the woman goes into labour. The wording here is slightly ambiguous. There's been a debate over, is it harm to the child that it speaks about? Is it harm to the woman that it speaks about? Or is it both? And whilst interpretations have differed down through the years, the earliest interpretations, and when it's been translated in early times into other languages, it's been interpreted as harm to the child. So when it's been translated into Greek, for example, in a a document called the Septuagint, it's translated as though it's harm to the child. And if it wasn't harm to the child, why would you include that the woman was pregnant? That would make no sense, would it? You may as well just have a woman or a man being hit. It would be the same principle. Why mention um, that she uh, is pregnant? And it's saying if she gives birth prematurely and the child survives, the perpetrators get off with just a fine if there's no injury to the child. But if she miscarries or the child takes injuries, then whatever happens to the child happens to the people who caused the premature birth. That was the Old Testament law. Life in the womb here is precious, of equal worth there to life outside the womb. But that's not to say that there's not tricky situations. This is a tricky topic when we look at it. There are situations where the life of the mother is at risk, and it's then a decision about who lives, the mother or the child. And those are real-life moral dilemmas, aren't they? The fact of the matter is, though, that they only make up a tiny proportion of cases of abortion in the UK and in the world, as we'll see in a minute. They actually make up, in those cases, only around one in every 2,000 abortions that take place. And that's not necessarily death to the mother, that would be just harm to the mother. We don't believe, sorry, we, we believe, don't we, that the mother's life is precious too. And that makes cases like that difficult. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, that is not the issue. 
not a question about the life of the mother, but of lifestyle. Often people want their lifestyle to be as it was before they became pregnant, for that to continue as it was before. But the fact of life beginning at conception and the preciousness of life means that we need to think carefully how we think about abortion. It's not a medical procedure. It is, whatever we think about it, the ending of a life. And I say that not to make people who have decided to have an abortion feel guilty, but to call a spade a spade. It's also worth saying, though, that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Actually, I would go as far as to say that not every abortion is equal, just as not every act of killing in the Bible is treated equally. In some cases, there were cities of refuge where people could run if they'd not planned to kill someone. It was treated differently as well if they killed when their life was in danger. So there are differences sometimes that might go on between why people are doing this. But that said, every abortion is a tragedy, is a travesty. And often the mothers will feel that too. It's a sad thing, but it's not unforgivable. And we need to bear that in mind as we talk about the issue. It's not the worst thing that someone can do. And often people are doing it after being given bad information about what they're actually doing. They've not made an informed decision, but a misinformed decision. And we need to bear that in mind as we talk to people. Women who have gone through this are often victims too of bad advice and bad information. They don't know that they're taking a life, and might not have done if they'd known that that's what they were doing. So the situation is tricky. So that's what the Bible says. Life begins at conception, and that human life is precious, and that affects how we look at abortion. So what is the UK situation? What, what happens at the moment? Well, abortions can take place in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy in England, Scotland, and Wales. However, they need to be approved by two doctors. They must agree having the baby would pose a greater risk, risk to the physical or mental health of the woman than a termination. That's what they have to agree to. The problem is that it could be argued that the risk is always greater if a pregnancy is continued. And that means in practice that it's abortion on demand because she can always fulfil that condition. Abortions were made, uh, were illegal up until the introduction of the 1967 Abortion Act, which initially allowed them to take place up to 28 weeks. This was reduced to 24 in 1990. Abortions after 24 weeks are only allowed if the woman's life is in danger, there's a severe fetal abnormality, or the woman is at great risk of physical or mental injury. Abortion in those cases, in the UK, is allowed up until birth. And severe fetal abnormalities includes conditions such as Down syndrome. So a Down syndrome baby can be aborted effectively while the woman is in labour if she chose to choose it. I read recently of a woman who was told that by the doctors when she was in labour. Now, I think with things like that, it seems to go contrary to our society's increased sensitivity towards those people who are vulnerable and who are disabled. But actually, you're allowed to be until birth. Let me give you some statistics about the UK. I've tried my best to get them from reputable places like the BBC and the World Health Organisation, but as with all statistics, it's always best to go away and check them for yourself. That said, here we go. Since legalising abortion in the UK... Uh, in 1967, over 9 million abortions have taken place in the UK. 
To put that in perspective, that's the size of a country like Austria or Sweden in terms of people. Over 200,000 abortions take place each year in the UK, and around 40% of women having abortions have already had at least one abortion. Of those 200,000 abortions, just over 100 are due to risks uh, to the mother's life. That's 0.06%. 3,000 are down to physical or mental abnormalities in the child. Though actually, this can include abnormalities like clubbed feet or cleft palates, which can actually be fixed as soon as the child is born. And again, I can point you to people who've been told and counseled to have abortions because those things have been found. The rest, that's 98%, are put down to risk of injury or physical and mental health of the pregnant woman. But as we said, it's always riskier for the mother to continue the pregnancy. Therefore, this can always apply. Therefore, this is the one that's normally gone for. And according to the BBC, around one in three women in the UK will have an abortion during their lifetime. I find some of those quite shocking, really. I've been quite moved, really, as I've been going through some of those statistics this week. It's more common than we really think it is. It's just something that we don't talk about. So those are the statistics for the UK. Also, one of the interesting things about the UK situation is the language we use about abortion. And that's one of the strangest and scariest things I find, is the language that we use to describe what's going on. This is part of the bad information that people receive. If you think about it, the word abortion itself is very detached, isn't it? Very clinical. It's not even a signed word. So you know that like homicide, suicide, it's abort. And normally you don't abort living things. You abort a plan, you abort a mission, you abort a flight, a project. You call it off, you stop it. In that sense, it's actually quite a mild word for what's really happening. It sounds okay to, to campaign to legalise abortion, but to legalise infanticide sounds much stronger, doesn't it? Also one of the scary things with language is that the child is classified as a human being or not a human being, depending on the intentions of the parent. The same child at the same stage can be a baby or a fetus, depending on the wishes of the parent. So imagine a pregnancy 12 weeks along. If the child is wanted and dies in the womb, everyone says that the couple has lost a baby. If the child is unwanted and a procedure is performed at 12 weeks, then the couple have aborted a fetus. You never lose a fetus or abort a baby. We change the language to distance ourselves from what we're doing. But since when does someone's humanity depend on the intentions of another person? Imagine a parent changes their mind several times during pregnancy. Then a child could go from a non-living fetus to a living baby, and then back to a non-living fetus. For the will of the parents. Nothing objective has changed. Nothing scientific has changed. And actually with science, science is actually on our side here. It contradicts the mantra that you often hear that a fetus or embryo or a baby is just part of a woman's body. Science tells us that the DNA in every single cell in that baby's body is different from their mother's. Right from cell number one, the zygote, they have different DNA from their mother. There may be a different sex from their mother. The very blood that's pumped through their veins from day 20 is often a different type to their mother. And that could cause real problems, actually, if there are certain combinations of blood types. Because even their blood is different. 
Science shows us as well how early everything is formed in the womb, so that we cannot speak of them as a lump of cells. Oh, yeah, I've got exactly the wrong one, but here you go. Here's a baby at 16 weeks. Is that a lump of cells? 18 weeks. 24 weeks. Because actually the survival rate now for 24 weeks is 40%. Are these a collection of cells, which is how we speak about them in the media? Are they just part of a woman's body? Is that a 20-week-year-old fetus, or is it a baby? The language that we use can be very unhelpful. So next, the global situation. So that's our national situation. It's actually a big issue, though, across the world. Every year, 73 million abortions take place. That's about the country the size of the UK every year. There's 100 babies a minute. Somewhere between a quarter and a third of all pregnancies across the world end in abortion. And that's um, um, whether that's uh, legal or illegal in those countries. In some countries it's still illegal in the world. A disproportionate number of baby girls are aborted compared to boys. A recent report found significant differences in Albania, Armenia, Azerbaijan, China, Georgia, Hong Kong, India, South Korea, Montenegro, Taiwan, Tunisia, and Vietnam. China was the worst offender. Usually you get about 103 boys born for every 100 girls. In 2005, 118 boys were born for every 100 girls. In 2017, which is the latest stats that you can get, it was down to 114. But that's still a chunk of girls being aborted for no other reason than the fact that they're girls. In some regions of China, the rates are as high, still at this moment, of 130 boys for every 100 girls. In some parts of India, it's nearly as high. That's despite, actually, sex-selective abortion being illegal in those countries. Imagine if it wasn't. That's them breaking the law to do that. How many millions of women have been killed, or even if you disagreed with that word, denied existence because of discrimination in that way? Women are being killed before they even have a chance to defend themselves. So abortion, in that sense, is a tool of oppression, isn't it? It's not the choice of the, the mother always either. It's imposed sometimes by oppressive fathers who don't want daughters. How is that women's rights, which is normally how it's worded? when women aren't even allowed to be born in a lot of those cases. So what action can we take? Well, we can speak. That's one thing we can do, we can speak. Since a big part of what's happening is due to bad information, we need to make sure that good information is out there. Now, I have to say, personally, I don't think that picketing abortion clinics is the best way to do that. I think by that point, it's normally too late. I also don't think that putting graphic images of abortion uh, is the way to go either, which is what some uh, groups do. But I do think we need to be there providing a defence for our position and telling a better story, because we do have a better story, don't we? That all life is precious, that human life is precious. And again, science is on our side here. So again, if you see those pictures, these are the lumps of cells. Imagine if people were aware of that, of that being a baby at 16 weeks that we call a lump of cells a fetus. What some campaigners have called no more than a parasite. And again, I can point you to those pictures if you like. I think showing the preciousness of life is a far greater tool in our belt than showing the butchery of abortion. 
And science is on our side in that every year more babies survive from earlier and earlier outside the womb. The record at the moment stands at 21 weeks, 5 days. And babies often survive now routinely after 22 weeks. There was a story in the paper only this week of twins that were born at 22 weeks, well inside the window where abortion is allowed. There's also usually horror when people find out that disabled children can be aborted right up until birth. It really does seem a relic of a bygone age, doesn't it? It's not a scientific decision there, it's a prejudicial decision that discriminates against vulnerable people. So we should tell the better story of communities that care for those vulnerable people, who look out for those with additional needs, rather than trying to screen them out of existence. One European nation recently boasted that they had nearly eradicated Down syndrome in their country. When in fact, what that meant is that people with Down syndrome had been killed before they were born. I don't see how that is a medical advance. But it's not just science that's on our side, the gospel is on our side here too. Think about Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus showed far more care and attention to those in society deemed as non-people, who were denied their rights, who were not treated as true human beings. Jesus spent time with people who were disabled, who would have been aborted potentially with the, the current laws. Those are the people that Jesus spent his time caring for, and as a community we should be reflecting that as well in caring for those people. So that's the first thing we can do, speak. The second thing we can do is support. Since abortion is so widespread in the UK, one in three women, chances are that you know a couple or a woman who's had an abortion. You might even be someone uh, who's in a couple that's had one or might have one yourself. And some women really experience quite mental trauma after having abortion, sometimes years afterwards. We should provide all the support that we can. We should be there to help people in that situation. For us at our size of of church, that's probably not going to be an official sort of counselling ministry. But we can be a listening ear to our friends and family and colleagues. We can be a shoulder to cry on. We shouldn't hide the facts of what's happened. But we should remember that we're all sinners, irrespective of how we've sinned. Now, there's so much more we could say, but our talks on Sunday evenings are only 20 minutes. We haven't touched on things like incest or rape or that side of things. But I pray that what we've said so far has been helpful and useful and will help you start to think about these things, help you to look up these things yourself and start a helpful conversation amongst us about these things. And it's my prayer as well that God would help us lovingly stand for the truth on these matters, that we'd be able to speak for him and support those in need. So let's pray for that strength and then we'll break uh, for food. Father God, we pray that you would give us the strength to speak when that's appropriate. Father, give us the strength to support as well when we need to do that. Father, we're so saddened that this is happening across our world, Father. We're saddened that this is happening in our own country. Give us wisdom as we seek to influence at what's going on, Father, as we seek to help and show the preciousness of life and show, uh, Father, that we, we can't just throw it away. We're not disposable. Father, help us to bring that positive message to people and tell a better story. And not just that uh, things might improve with that, but that it might um, point them to the Lord Jesus who cared for people, who showed them love, and who spoke for the truth. Help us to be like him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.